Welcome to TV Community. I am Bob Demena, and here with me, as always, is the incredibly tender Elliot Chidley. Tender, heart in a blender. <laughs> uh, Thank you. Yeah. So our guest today is Rolf Potts. And if you're familiar with travel, and if you're familiar with vagabonding, then you've probably heard the name. Rolf Potts has been to more than 60 countries, all while working for the likes of National Geographic, Traveler, The New Yorker, and The New York Times. And he has worked for many other national and international news sources talking about travel. And his adventures alone have taken him across six continents, including piloting a fishing boat 900 miles down the Laotian Mekong River, which is a pretty gnarly river if you've ever watched River Monsters. There's some big fish in there. And he's hitchhiked across Eastern Europe, traveled Israel on foot, bicycled across Burma, which is now Myanmar, and he's driven a Land Rover across South America. And all the while, he took a six-month trip with basically no luggage or baggage. And I don't, like, I don't know how he did that, but he, he talks about it. I, I could not recommend his vagabonding book enough, not only to travelers, but anybody with even the slightest interest in traveling. It's a short read, and it's just so informative i mean and it starts off with the philosophy behind being a vagabond and understanding what it means to travel and what it can mean to you and to other people and then gets into the the details so if anything just pick it up and read the beginning of the book and then once you maybe plan a trip and you actually want to become a vagabond that's when the second half of the book the logistical planning of it and and what to bring comes into play but man i read it twice it was really good yeah and he's probably best known for his vagabonding ethics. And he wrote that it was published in 2003. So 17 years later, and it's still extremely relevant, even amidst all the technological advances that have occurred in that time. So it's really about the art of travel and doing it slowly, doing it ethically. Yeah. So before we get into that, though, really quick, going to give you the rundown. Our Travelers Blueprint private Facebook group called the Travelers Blueprint Community. You can join that and ask us questions. So, for example, if you have anything that you want to add or questions on our conversation with Rolf Potts, that will be the place to do it. We can help you understand what vagabonding means, maybe better understand how you can become a vagabond and things like that. It's it's geared to be an intimate way for us to communicate with you, our listeners. So definitely check that out. If you're listening to this on YouTube or podcast, subscribe, hit the like button. Very low energy, very easy way for you to just help out the podcast, help us grow. You know how these social media things work. The more engagement you get, the more you're seen and the better you grow. Therefore, the better content we'll be able to make because we'll be able to get better guests. So you do play a vital role role in the growth of this show, whether or not you realize it. And we could not be more thankful if you could do that for us. Uh, if you subscribe to our newsletter on our website, you'll get a free travel cheat sheet. Just breaks down a bunch of different ways you can plan and produce an itinerary for your next trip abroad. We now offer travel uh, video tutorials that you can you can go to our website and download, or I'm sorry, watch. And those are five. 15 to 20 minute videos that will help you plan your trip abroad that I produced um, 
by myself <laughs> with with the, with the help of Elliot. Elliot does play. I, I <laughs> I'm the face of it, but Elliot by far is the production guy. He's the one that makes it look nice and pretty. And so you you can actually enjoy it because yeah, it's something that you it's something that you actually want to look at. Right, right. Not just yeah. a PowerPoint presentation, Bob. <laughs> right. Yeah, Elliot is definitely the tech guy, and uh, and I, I I greatly appreciate him for that. Um, and then lastly, we we have got we have tours available on our website in Philadelphia, our home city. So if you're interested in touring the city of Philadelphia, one, let us know in the travels the uh, Facebook group because we might be able to meet up and, and grab a drink, show you around. But if you're interested in specific tours, you can go to our website and book with a close friend of the podcast, Keshler Fibert, who offers two tours exclusive to the Traveler's Blueprint on our website. I think that's it for that whole spiel. So without further introduction, please give it up for our next guest, Rolf Potts. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Rolf, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Good to be talking to you in these, this strange pandemic time. Yes, yeah. right. Well, you have more recently written, well, not recently, but you've written several travel books. And the one that Bob and I have read and listened to and are really curious to talk about is Vagabonding, which you wrote 17 years ago, and it is still incredibly relevant today. And you yourself are a big proponent of Vagabonding. You've traveled over 60 countries. You're an author for several different uh, National Geographic style magazines, uh, newspapers, and you've been to all, you've been to six continents except Antarctica? That's correct, yeah. All right. And so today we just want to focus on your travels, your experience with vagabonding and your overall mentality of what travel means and how and how vagabonding is sort of a not necessarily a lifestyle lifestyle, but a way of thinking. Yeah, I, I think it's important before we get into it, Ralph, do you mind defining vagabonding for, for the audience and anybody who may not know what that means? Well, vagabonding is more than just a vacation. It's taking time off from your normal life to travel the world in earnest, tra to travel the world slowly, and sort of to make your travel dreams come true. And that can be, there's no set amount of time for it. It can be a year. It commonly is a year. People will take a year off. But it can be six weeks if that's what you can spare. It can be five years if that's what, what you find happening. But really, it's, it's a way of making travel central to your life so that it becomes less of a consumer experience in the form of a vacation, not to knock vacations, but it's a different monster going on a vacation. And it's really making travel an active part of your life in such a way that it can affect uh, your life for the better. In your book, you talk about how you came up with the term vagabonding because like vacationing didn't really do it, uh, touring didn't really do it, and you got it from vagabond, which you later learned that Vagabonding was not the first time it had been spoken of. It was Ed Byrne, right? Ed Buren, yeah. I interviewed yeah. him for my podcast. It hasn't come out yet, but I think he's 86 now. So it was a, a different oh, wow. generation, a different generation of, uh, of travelers. That book came out shortly before I was born. It was called <laughs> Vagabonding in, in Europe and North Africa. 
And I mean, even Ed didn't invent the term. Um, Mark Twain used the word vagabonding uh, in his writing. Um, but I actually found that I was writing a column for Salon.com. This is years ago when Salon.com had a travel department. Um, and I found the book in a store in, in Tel Aviv and I bought it just because it was called Vagabonding and my, my column for Salon was called Vagabonding. And then a few months later, I actually read it and it was such a smart and, and incisive book that had been written before I was born about Vagabonding. And so it just sort of made me realize that this concept you know, I think my version of vagabonding really coincided with the rise of the internet and social media and this new way of living. But the concept itself, the philosophy, goes beyond Ed Buren and Mark Twain. You know, I, I quote literature that's thousands of years old in vagabonding. So it's just, a, it's a way of being that's more in tune with certain ways of our own humanity and travel as a way of waking up those sides of ourselves, I think. Yeah, and in, in your term of vagabonding, I think it really struck a chord with a lot of younger folks uh, on the age of the internet. And I think you really pushed the digital nomad movement. And a lot of people agree that you may have strongly influenced, if not uh, were the precipice of the digital nomad movement. Yeah, um, I, I sort of found out this by accident. Obviously, Tim Ferriss, who was a real champion of my book with the 4-Hour Workweek, he's considered an influence on the digital nomad movement. So. In some ways, my influence has been through Tim Ferriss, but uh, I was looking, I didn't invent the term digital nomad, but I looked at the Wikipedia entry and my name is there, right? So oh, really? I, I think like uh, philosophically, the ideas that go into vagabonding, they weren't about the, the digital nomad. They weren't necessarily steered towards the idea of taking your life and working from overseas. But the book came out at a technological moment when it was so much easier to make that happen with Skype, and things like WhatsApp and social media. Um, what might have been a strange thing a generation earlier, it suddenly became a very sane and normal thing. And so I think a lot of people who became digital nomads, they read Vagabonding, The 4-Hour Workweek, and other philosophical and practical um, books, as well as utilizing this great technology we have right now to literally take their life on the road. And you know, as I said, I don't know if I literally said it in vagabonding, but uh, I know I said it on that first book tour that tell your boss that you can, if you can work from home, you can work from Rio or Cape Town, you know, right. um, uh, just make it, make it easy for your boss. And, and this is an interesting thing that I said in the book. It's like, well, put your travels on your resume. And when vagabonding first came out, people said, really, you know, that's, I, don't, I, I think I need to hide my travels. Well, now that's not seen as an unusual thing at all with the digital nomad, with the rise of the digital nomad movement. Nobody questions me about that anymore because literally travel can make you more employable unless you're being a complete knucklehead you know um travel travel can deepen your life in a way in this globalized era that can make you more employable yeah i, I think we're seeing a shift in that I, I i would the only thing i would disagree on is the older generations i still to me i think frown upon those uh spiritual those you know the spiritual uh sabbaticals and things like that i or at least historically have been but yeah i agree it, it's it's becoming more common in it. the the okay boomer response right <laughs> right yeah that idea that you know you didn't you weren't cut out for the nine to five and you went on this journey and you know you kind mm. of and now you want to come back and, ha and and get a job i don't know um yeah but, but i mean this a side tangent the the thought process of all that like from the greatest generation in the 30s and 40s to now and the mentality that a lot of order I, I can't generalize and say a lot of them because I don't, 
I only know a handful that think this way, that the millennial generation doesn't work. We only want to play. We think mm. what we want to make a huge difference our first two years at a job. And then we quit because we didn't make that difference. And then we complain about our life being difficult, but we're not in constant war. We have basically every amenity we could ever want. But we also have been dealing with, you know, crushing debt. We've been dealing with like social anxiety with which we thought, you know, social media was going to be great for us, but it's actually been a bit of a detriment. And so all of the stuff they've worked for was to get us to this point, right? Like we shouldn't make life harder. We should be making life for future generations easier. Yeah, I think that that generational conversation, it's always a little bit um, disingenuous because, you know, obviously people don't behave in generational blocks. You know, there's a lot of individualism within generations. But I think that there is sort of some, that boomer mentality sort of forgets how historically unique the prosperity and the growth that happened when they were young was, you know. Uh, And so they sort of believe in this idea of of limitless, limitless growth that really isn't sustainable for lack of a better word. One thing about the millennial, I'm in the middle, I'm a generation X. So we're just sort of trying to break <laughs> you guys up a little bit. You're um, standing off to the sidelines. <laughs> right. But, and, and those are two huge cohorts of Americans, right? Um, and so I think, you know, um, generation X is just a smaller cohort, but millennials are adults now. And I think millennials can address the boomers as adults and say, look, this is, this is where the situation is. I'm going to travel and I'm going to be a better employee for this. Now, obviously what job you're talking about, it'll depend on what kind of job you're talking about. But I think sometimes older generations need to be reminded of the, the sort of the dynamism and intelligence of the younger generations and what they have to learn from the younger generations. And I think this will come through with generation Z too. My, my nephew is 18, poor guy. He, he's going to have to graduate via zoom probably from high school, but he's a, he's like a TikTok influencer and just like, this, the, the amount of smart ideas that are flying around on TikTok on this little 15 second platform just blow me away. And I have no influence over him at all. So in a way, I have a lot to learn from him. I think boomers, I don't know how many boomers listen to your podcast, but if there are any, just it, it's, it's important, not just for the, the boomer cohort, but for any generation to realize that there's a dialogue going on and that the people are doing things in smart ways. And that if there are boomer employers who see travel as a way of compromising yourself, well, just because you spent your vagabonding time on the business end of a bong in 1973 doesn't mean that that's what the millennials are doing. You know, that <laughs> for smart ways, just hire the millennial who isn't a knucklehead, hire the millennial who traveled in a dynamic way and it's going to bring skills global skills that make your business better so i think again it i think it's a little insipid to to think that all gen x people and all millennials and all boomers think the same but as older and younger people within our cohorts it's important to listen to each other and to communicate to each other i think sometimes the way the reason boomers are put off by millennials is that millennials are a little bit defensive and a little bit aggressive in trying to defend themselves but just say, look, you know, I understand your, your world was different, but uh, this is what I know. This is what I learned. This is what I can bring you as an employee. Now, again, I'm not saying that this is going to apply to every job, but um, yeah, it's, it's an important conversation and, and older people, please listen. You know, it's an important <laughs> skill. Yeah. yeah. And younger people should listen too. Oh, for sure. They, yeah. I mean, we can learn uh, a ton from older generations. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, well going back to, to vagabonding. Um, 
And something that, that I loved about the book was that this is, to me, like the idea of vagabonding is what everybody thinks of when they think of travel. When I say, you know, when they get it in their head, I want to travel the world. That is the idea. You know, you're going to learn on the road and you're going to take in these experiences naturally throughout, you know, your, your movement um, and as you, as you travel. But most people don't do that at all. Most people think that's how it's going to play out, but most people show up to a city or to a, to a location with everything already booked, you know, with a start and an end point, uh, tours booked, and they don't actually experience it in the sense of vagabonding. Um, why do you think that is? Why do you think everybody wants to be a, a vagabond, but very few actually get to do it or, or, you know, yeah, do it at all? Well, I think... You know, in America, life options are often presented as consumer options, and that's fine. But I think it's important to remember that travel itself need not be a consumer experience that you plan and that you buy like another product. Um, that you sort of have to surrender to the idea of travel in the way that you can't really control it and that you can learn from it as you go. Um, and so I think, yeah, that we, we often have, and actually, you know, this is never going to go away. There's different metaphors that we bring into the idea of travel. One of them is Instagram. Um, and I'm, I'm active on Instagram, but one thing that I've noticed from being active on Instagram is that it never really communicates anything honest about travel, even as you're trying. Because my most interesting travel experiences are not necessarily my most photographic ones. And so I can throw up a generic picture of like a beach or the Eiffel Tower, and it gets five times as much engagement as a much more nuanced you know, picture of a very interesting experience on a beach in Sumatra that people would die. It would be their travel dream to be there. Yet, because it's not iconic, because it's not this vision of platonic idealism, because it has this nuance, it doesn't involve, it doesn't attract engagement from Instagram. And that's just, that's the medium is the message. Instagram is a visual medium and people will never embrace that nuance. But that's just a metaphorical way of saying that you can't really appreciate travel until you're there in person. There's no mediated way to, to truly appreciate travel. You just have to be there and smell it and make mistakes and learn lessons and be smarter for each day that you're on the road. And so that's why I really encourage people to, to just go out and do it and, and just leave your ego at home and realize that you're going to be a fool sometimes. But going out there and having those experiences are going to be so much more rewarding than standing in line for the, for the Instagram moment. And again, I'm being metaphorical there. Instagram is an interesting platform, but if you just go out with the, to get the experience that you thought you would have, you're going to sell yourself short when in fact the, the life-changing experience might just happen in a cafe in a warm moment in Italy and, and it isn't even, you, you aren't even able to tweet about it. It's just such a life-enriching moment that you just experience it. Yeah, I so, think your, your book touches on that uh, and it, it's 17 years later, it still holds true. Yeah which is the fact that a lot of our ideas on travel are seeing sightseeing and sightseeing is this, it's kind of sterile. Like the more popular it becomes, the less genuine it becomes. And a lot of the real experiences that you want to have are going to come not from a lonely planet guidebook that you followed, but everything that's not in the lonely planet guidebook. Don't get me that wrong. You, you mentioned that they are valuable to learn about the cultures, learn about resources in those countries, but not necessarily what to do, what to see, and what to eat. 
Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, I, I've sort of been beating up on Instagram a little bit, but that's not an old idea. In fact, uh, during the grand tour of the late 18th century, there were certain like English noblemen, young guys, who would hire a coach and leave at like three o'clock in the morning so they could check off as many sites in Rome as possible off their list. And so this guy, one guy, and this is like hundreds of years old, was bragging about how much he was able to see in one day. And, and like somebody else in that same era said, really, have you really seen that stuff? You know, when you're, when you're going through the streets of Rome at 25 miles an hour, checking things off your list. And so I think that this is an old idea, the idea that as consumers of travel, the more we see, the more we experience. Well, actually sometimes, this is a, a, another metaphor I've used to my own students. I teach a class in Paris sometimes, is that my students will come to Paris and they'll get antsy because they'll order lunch at a cafe and they'll want to see the Champs-Élysées and, and the Louvre and all these things. And the waiter has taken forever to get their meal, you know, and suddenly what they thought would be a 30 minute lunch is two hours and they're just so frustrated. And it's like, dude, that's Paris. That's more Parisian than any of the museums on your <laughs> list. But it's, it's eating slow, savoring your lunch, enjoying the people you're with. That's literally more French than anything you'll see in a museum or on a, you know, on the Champ du Mar under the Eiffel Tower. Not, not to knock those things, as I love taking people to those places in Paris. But you have to realize that a check, the checklist mentality only goes so far when you're in a country where the whole point is to savor your lunch. And if you don't savor your lunch and just pay the bill when it comes, then that's not really being very French. Um, and so I think one thing I encourage people is just, just to slow down. Just to one advantage of having, say, a year to travel is not to be able to pack in 60 countries. It's to be able to pack in a handful of countries in a way that you can really savor and enjoy them and let them change you. Yeah. The, the New York Times, not the New York Times, the New Yorker comic strip that you shared of the guy, you know, in the travel, uh, travel agency looking at all the pictures of the Eiffel Tower, the pyramids, and he, <laughs> the caption is, Oh, I can't wait to see and be disappointed. So yeah. To, 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 I don't know if this is playing devil's advocate. So as we've touched up on this a ton in our, in our podcast, uh, I have a very different travel style than vagabonding. I am like the, the itinerary follower. The right. And, but the thing is, I mean, I, I, part of, part of this podcast and part of the, you know, half the reason I love travel is because I want to learn and experience it in new ways. And now I'm exploring how, you know, how I can change it up and, and, and experience the world differently than I have been before. But anyway, I, it, something that I've concluded uh, by reading your book is that the vagabond and the tourist both ultimately have the same goal, and it's to experience and to learn. And something that you recommend is that, you know, the vagabond brings a guidebook with them, and as they travel through the country, they read about the places that they, they, they're currently visiting and the language and the culture. Whereas I, I do that too. I just do it before I go. So because I already have that information in my head and I know the culture and I know what, I know the history of the monument I'm standing in front of, I don't need to read it there. I can then take it a little bit faster while I'm there because I already have that information. Whereas the vagabond needs to take the time in to, to absorb and learn. Whereas, you know, does that make sense? I mean, I've three, sure. three months before I went on my trip, I learned about the Coliseum and the history of the Coliseum. So when I step there, all I need to do at this point is focus on the architecture and, and then let my imagination and the knowledge I already have run its course. Um, well, I think so, everybody, everybody has their own style and it's good. I, you know, I don't think that, that, that 
like the rubber stamp Rolf Potts vagabonding style needs to apply to everybody. And I would suspect that in 10, 10 years from now, you're going to travel in a way that's a little bit different. Um, and I'm sort of an itinerary nerd myself, but what I've learned over the years is to let go of my itinerary when I find something that is more spontaneous or interesting. Um, and then sometimes knowing the history, actually a funny detail, I'm stuck in quarantine here right next door to my parents. They live like I could be at my parents' house in 90 seconds. Um, and my dad is a planner, you know, he reads ahead of the time. Um, my mom, she plans and just gets nervous. It just freaks her out if she reads too much. But when they're on the road, they sort of switch where she's a great spontaneous person. And then he gets tired and confused and, and gets lost sometimes. And so they make a good travel team. And so I think those are both strengths to have. The planning is good, but then also on the ground um, dynamism is good too. And that sometimes if you know like the history of the Coliseum, well, you might talk to a guy who works as a juggler there and he might have some ideas or you might talk to uh, some, some tourists and it's their fifth time visiting it and they have a cool after hours tour that you can see. So I think sometimes our itineraries are in conversation with what happens when we get there and you have to allow for both of them. One, one thing that happened a lot when I was writing the book is you would get salty travelers who would almost brag about they had no itinerary at all. They would just show up without a plan at all. And it's like, really? Well, like sometimes it's good to know what the cultural norms are, you know, so that you're not wearing your shorts in a temple um, that offends the local sensibilities. Or you're not laying on a grass lawn beneath a Portuguese. <laughs> <laughs> right. In a, in, a, in a dog, in a dog walk full of dog pee. Right. Um, and so I think it's, it's in dynamism and that we all, um, we come to, you know, to be that dogmatic about being a non-planning traveler is, is as weird as being someone who overplans, right? So I think it's, it's dynamic and being able to learn about how your itinerary serves you and then sometimes how your itinerary can limit your experience if you're, if you're, too, if you're too stringent about following every detail of that itinerary. Um, so yeah, I'm all, about, I'm all about figuring it out. And I try not to be too snobby about travelers versus tourists and, and, and vacationers versus vagabonds because everybody has their own window into things. And, and I'll make one more point before I stop here. Is it, um, sometimes you'll go to a place like the, like, the, uh, like the Great Wall of China, for example, uh, and you'll think, oh, there's, there's more interesting places in China than like the, the tourist access part of the Great Wall of China. But then you'll meet someone from like Indiana and it's their dream trip. And for 40 years, all they wanted to go do was go there, right? And, and um, how awesome is that? You know, that they're in a place that you see as sort of over-touristed and you think there's more interesting parts of the wall or of China, but this is, this is like the coolest moment of their life, you know? And to be a snob about that is, is, to, sort of, is to sort of be a dick, you know? It's yeah. to sort of, it's to sort of uh, realize that this is, this is a special moment in their life and that's worth respecting too. Yeah. And to Bob's point, I think... Tourist attractions, the big sites in every destination are really valuable to see and don't just, you know, use it as a checklist item, but actually learn about it. They're cool. They're grandiose for a reason. There's a ton of history behind every single monument behind the Eiffel Tower, behind Machu Picchu. And yeah, you can spend, you know, two hours to a day there, but there's much more than two hours to a day of research that you could learn about that and actually make your experience that much better. Yeah, I, I think too that those are starting points. Those are sort of bucket list items. And then once you go there, and actually if you've done your research, you might know about this, that you know, you go to Machu Picchu, but you know there's Choque Carao up the up the valley. There's tons of sites in that in that part of Peru. And that your first experience can be at Machu Picchu. And that is 
that is a mind blowing place. I, I went there and there's a lot of places where you go and you expect to be disappointed, you know? Um, yeah. I'm trying to think of an example. Well, maybe the, the great pyramids of Egypt. I, I love the great pyramids of Egypt, but there's like a pizza hut. There was a pizza hut when I was there and there's a ton of tourists and it's, it's hard to immerse yourself, but, but Machu Picchu just blow, blew my mind. That, that was just breathtaking. But every place you go, you know, 20 miles up the valley, there's going to be another Incan era site that's going to be pretty amazing and that you can have to yourself. And if you do your research, you'll find out about it. If you ask questions, you'll find out about it. So it's sort of double duty. You can have your mind blown for seeing Machu Picchu, but you can also find out where a quieter version, but just as Incan site is, that's close, if you have the time to see it. Mm -hmm. um, and so everywhere you go, I mean, another thing I often tell people is, if you get tired of all the tourists, wherever you are, walk 20 minutes in any direction, you'll find a more authentic vision of Peru or Paris or Las Vegas or wherever you are. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In the beginning of your book, you mentioned that vagabonding is a philosophy and not everyone is going to agree with that philosophy and it's not for everyone. And like Bob and myself the, and pretty much every American, we have no set vacation, like federally mandated vacation, right? It's all set by the employer, usually two weeks when you start and you earn more vacation time, the longer you're either with that company or you're within that industry, as opposed to a lot of European countries, Australia, New Zealand, that have close to a month off when you first start working, we are almost forced to have Bob's style of travel. And I'm usually forced into that, even though I prefer the vagabond style. Like I prefer to stay in one location for a long amount of time. I prefer to just know my big like transportation, flight, whatever, train there, maybe one or two nights that I have to find a place to stay and then let everything else happen while I'm there. And to the whole tourist and sightseeing side of things, it's almost as if people like following lists right? That's people like to know and to follow. And it's hard to just take everything on a whim, especially your first time. And just to get up that courage, get over that roadblock of fear and the unknowing of not doing anything that you've ever done before. Yeah. And I think sometimes you don't have to be a vagabond every time you travel. You can take that two-week vacation and just enjoy it for what it is. Because vagabonding is really about creating time for long-term travel. And I think the lessons you learn from vagabonding can apply to your two-week vacation. Um, and there are strategies that you can take. Like you can, you can take your two weeks and just go to Rome and just walk around Rome and find things there. You don't have to fit in you know, Florence and Naples as well. Um, because I think one thing you learn is that by going slower, you can find so much in, in one little place. Um, but yeah, vacations, vacations are cool. Lists are cool. And I think sometimes you don't need to be a fundamentalist about being a vagabonder. Like um, 10 years ago, I went around the world with no luggage just to sort of see if I could do it. It was sort of a high publicity trip. I was sending videos a few times a week from the trip. And some people who had read Vagabonding says, oh, well, you're breaking the rules of Vagabonding. You're going so fast. You're, there's all these plans. And it's like, yeah, okay. I mean, this isn't really Vagabonding. You know, it's, it's a good, sure, sure, I'm breaking the rules. <laughs> but this is, this is just, I'm, this is an experiment in traveling light and I'm having fun. And sure, I'm going way faster than I probably should, but that's part of the fun. And so sure, I'm a hypocrite, whatever. I'm, I'm, it doesn't really matter because 
I think at the, at the end of the day, um, it's about getting the most out of the experiences that you have. And I, that was, I loved that trip. That was super memorable. It was a lot faster than, uh, than I would normally do. I, I um, actually missed traveling slow during that trip. But what a fun challenge and what a great way to see things that I might not normally have seen. Um, and through various sponsorships, I did some safaris that I might not have been, been able to, to afford. And, and I just, I guess it was a different framework for travel in a way, the fast travel was sort of a weird challenge because it had been a while since I'd tried to fly around the world in, in six weeks. And um, yeah, so um, yeah, I guess it goes back. I haven't said this in interviews uh, very much, but yeah, don't be a dick about it. You know, um, <laughs> enjoy vagabonding, embrace the principles that um, that it, it espouses and find your own to travel. But the moment you're being a dick about it and looking over your shoulder and condemning other travelers, well, let them do, let them go their own way. And maybe right. the best... The best way is that they might look at you and think, really, you have, you have six months? Really? How does that work? Then let their curiosity engage you rather than you uh, wagging your finger and talking about how awesome you are. So, yeah, uh, yeah. You mentioned several times that vagabonding does not give you a moral high ground. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, um, so can we get into how someone can take the steps in their life to set them on course to vagabond? Uh, we, I, we have a lot, of, a lot of younger people that listen to the podcast. Uh, and, and so helping them, I guess, you know, get an understanding of ways they can do this with their own lives when, uh, when they're able to. Well, I think one thing you hear a lot from older, wealthier people is that they have, they're richer in money when they're old, but they're way richer in time when they were young. And when you're young, there's no greater time to just, you don't have a lot of money. But it actually doesn't cost that much to travel, you know, that if you don't mind sleeping on a few couches or living in hostels and going slow and taking a few chicken buses, it's cheaper to travel than to live in any it's major a chicken American bus. city. It's a bus full of chickens, right? It's, it's a oh, bus. It is what it is. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, it's, that's a euphemism, but it, basically it's a bus in Thailand or Costa Rica where you're there and then a woman who's taken her six chickens to market is there. And a dude who's selling his little bag of fruits is there and a family that they're going to their aunt's funeral is there. And it's like a carnival on a bus. It's way more interesting than any bus in the industrialized world. And it costs like 75 cents to go for six hours. So that's a chicken bus. Um, right. But this traveler economy, I was just reading recently about the rise of the hostile movement, which sort of happened after World War I in Europe. That basically uh, travel was seen as a, as a Europeans thought, well, travel is a way to enrich your life when you're young, so let's make it easier for travelers. They don't mind sleeping in a bunk room with 20 other people, so let's make it 50 cents to, to get into this hostel. And so there's all of these ways that if you travel in local economies, that if you travel in backpacker economies, you can literally live your, week, your week's expenses in a cheaper way than you would live at home. So I'm sure somewhere there's a depressed 20-year-old you know, living in... Queens, New York, who just is so sad that he can't travel because it's so darn expensive. Well, actually, it's a lot cheaper than living in Queens, New York to travel through Thailand, to travel through Panama, to travel through Egypt or any other amazing parts of the world. So just realize that you have permission to take that five grand you saved and travel for six months and you can literally do it. You have to have some discipline. You can't indulge yourself every time. You can't, you know, go out and drink six beers every night, although I know people who do. Uh, you can't buy expensive souvenirs and stay at a super expensive hotel every night. 
but you stay in bunk rooms and guest houses, you ride on chicken buses, and you have an interesting life, and it's totally accessible. And I can get more specific, but just for the younger people in your audience, know that it's totally possible. People have been doing it for, for generations, and it's just a matter of giving yourself permission and then figuring out the specific plans from there. One thing, uh, as, as far as cost goes, that really stuck out with me is when you mentioned that uh, pizza, you know, what you pay for a pizza to get delivered to your house could essentially feed you for an entire week in Asia. Oh, for sure. And I think that there's so much that we, life has become even more convenient in, in the time since I've written that book. Um, but there's just all these habits that we get into. Of course, people don't smoke as much. I guess now they vape. Um, but like buying coffee every day, getting your hair cut at a nice place. There's all these habits that literally, if you just cut them out of your life and give yourself a crappy haircut or make your own coffee, then literally you've bought yourself a month in Thailand. You know, you, you've bought yourself six weeks in Egypt and Jordan. And it's hard to believe, but it's, it's literally true. Um, right. And people are intimidated. They think, Egypt? Wow, I don't know. You know, that seems like such a confusing place. Isn't it dangerous there? After a week in Egypt, you'll figure it out. Um, and I've, I've met, there's like six, I, there's one place in, in Egypt called the, the Sultan Hotel. It's a little hostel I stayed in. It was like $6 for a bunk bed. I quote like six different people from the first edition of Vagabond in that book. I made friends for life in that place from places like New Zealand and Germany and Arizona. And um, I'm just so grateful that I was there to meet those people. And, and so that'll happen, especially when you're young. And I, I like, I don't set limits on how old you have to be to travel. There's 73 year olds who have amazing experiences, but for young people who are nervous about it, yeah, cut out your coffee habit, cut out some small habits and it just doesn't cost that much to travel and have amazing experiences. That's great right. to know. That means I just, like this week alone, I just saved enough to live in Vietnam for a month. Yeah, it, it could be. Vietnam, when I was there, was not that expensive. Indonesia, a year ago, year, a year and two months ago, I was in Indonesia. Oh my God, that was so cheap. I was doing a Zoom lecture to some students here in Kansas where I live when I'm not traveling. And they're talking about various dream trips. And it's like, I was literally on the beach that people die of robbing, they, they dream of robbing a bank and dying on. It cost me $18 on Sumatra. And that included three <laughs> meals a day. Three meals a day, a perfect beach on a reef full of beautiful fish that you, that you dream about in a PBS special. $18, and I had it to myself. And, and literally, the world is full of those places. You just have to go out and find them. Um, yeah. Why do people think it's so expensive? Where did that come from? Is it the airfare that people are deterred by? I mean, the airfare can still be very expensive. To get to, to, get to Bali from the United States, it can, can run you $1,000. Yeah. Well, I think that in advertisements, like the, the only thing we see is how like the people that are advertising. So like hotels are like saying, oh, it's $150 a night. And that's the only stuff. We're, we're not going to see an advertisement for a hostel. We're not going to see an advertisement for a couch surfer. Right. Yeah. Well, there, it's like, it's like Russian nesting dolls of how this all works is that if you only see the outside of the shell, you know, to use the travel expenses metaphor, that's a pretty big doll. That's a lot, that's expensive, but you know, it's the travel industry and God bless them. You know, I, I, I sort of encourage people not to get too caught up in the travel industry, but the travel industry solves a lot of problems, including cheap international fares, which are often the biggest expense. But you said, you know, the flight to Bali. Well, Bali is great, but Bali is the Indonesian island that we know about because it's Bali, because it's awesome, because you can surf there and there's all these great art villages. But really, Bali is probably the most expensive part of Indonesia. I went to Sumatra. That's one example of many islands. There are 
t probably 20 islands that are as awesome as Bali, but not as well known as Bali. And then until you get there, you know, until you're in Flores, you know, until you're in Sumatra, until you're in Sulawesi or these other parts of Sumatra, and you're, you're, you're like paying $8 for a hotel, literally, I'm not exaggerating, $8 for a hotel in front of a waterfall that blows your mind, and you're so happy to be there. Yeah, you won't know, you won't learn about it from the travel industry, because those people don't have a budget to advertise in Iowa, right? You know, you have to go to Indonesia, you have to wander around. And that, you know, by the time you, yeah, so, so it's, it's the big corporate hotels on the beautiful beaches that can afford to advertise. But if you just give yourself permission to travel, you go to Bali, you have your mind blown, you meet all these awesome people, then you go to Flores, then you go to Sumatra, and pretty soon you're slowing down, you're learning more, and you're realizing, oh my God, this was always here. This $8 hotel that I woke up, sat in a hammock on my porch, and saluted my new friend from Germany on the other, you know, cottage in this place. It was always here, and all I had to do was show up. So that's another thing for your listeners. All you have to do is show up. You know, throw your money at the first week, and then realize that every week is probably going to be cheaper if you allow it to be. Well, that, and you said that if you find packages in the U.S. for, you know, an eight-day trip in Indonesia, you can find that same or similar eight-day trip once you get to Indonesia for a tenth of the price. Absolutely. And then you can find that you can do the same trip using your own knowledge of the bus schedule and the, and the hotel schedule. And it's a, and it's a 12 day trip. You know, you don't have to be confined by those eight days. If you give yourself permission to travel long-term, you know, if it's a short-term journey, you can, you can do the same thing, especially in the off season, you fly, into a place like Bali or Sumatra, and if you only have eight days, then you just ask some questions and, and say, hey, what's, um, how do I get to this place I dreamed about? And people will tell you, you know, it's, it's, it's like, um, it's not like the tour company has exclusive rights to take you to this awesome place. It's just that they've made it convenient. And, and, and uh, again, I'm not gonna knock the travel industry. We need people to allow a, a very efficient trips to places. But if you give yourself permission to go your own way, you can have the same experience for the fraction of the price. Yeah. And you mentioned that the travel industry, specifically in the United States, has become consumeristic, kind of like how the mentality to buy more things instead of the philosophy of having experiences, making relationships, and becoming rich in memories rather than rich with things. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and that's another, that's another permission issue, you know, or even just like rich in memories rather than a, a, a rich in bucket list ticks. And again, I'm not going to knock bucket lists because bucket lists get us out the door. But I think when you come home with that bucket list and all the items are checked off, it's the little places between the items of the bucket list. It's going to be these awesome experiences um, that you're going to remember the best, you know, that so you're going to. You're, those are going to be your deathbed smile moments, you know, those little awesome experiences that you had no idea that would happen. And, and, and again, I'm not going to knock the travel industry, but they make things efficient. The travel industry sometimes lets us think, oh, yeah, well, the world is dangerous and we can make it safer. Um, but actually, if, if you're a thief in Cairo, uh, you're probably going to go to the tour bus because that's where a lot of people are with a lot of money. You're not going to find the dirtbag backpacker who's walking around in your own neighborhood, you know. <laughs> that's a great point. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and staying on par with what it means to be a vagabond, I know something else that someone needs to develop once, they, uh, once they're ready to go is the mindset. 
Can you explain the mindset that people should start to approach if they want to take up vagabonding? Well, I think be a pilgrim and you know pilgrim has a religious connotation but really just an idea that you are on a quest that is going to enhance your life in a way that pays rewards that are, are sort of spiritual at least they're not necessarily reputational or or, or um, materialistic rewards that you're that really think about travel in the context of your entire life and i know that might sound weird but sometimes when you just think of vacations or short-term trips or dream trips you think, oh, I can check that off list. I can make it happen. But if your attitude also encompasses, how can I make my life better? You know, how can I make, how can I just embrace everything the world has to offer and learn things and meet people? Um, it, it's so funny. I've I've heard from people since Vagabonding came out 17 years ago who said, yeah, I met my wife on the road. You know, I met my wife. Uh, she's from Canada. I met her in Lithuania and now we have two kids and we're traveling again, you know, so let your life be changed, you know, um, allow yourself to fall in love with a person or a place if that's what it happens and just realize that you're going to, you have permission to come back from your trip, a changed person, a richer person, not just a more employable person, but a person who's more likely to engage in your own community in a dynamic way. Um, I don't know. It just, it, allow travel to make yourself a better person. And it sounds like your audience might be a little bit young and that's great. You know, just, just realize that you're going to be a different person with each passing year of your life. And if you travel in such a way to just sort of build on who that person is and give yourself more perspective, it's, it's going to be so much better than if you're just checking things off a list, not to knock lists. Right. Well, that's, uh, that's sort of where I'm at. I'm slowly being pulled to your side of travel, if you want to call it that, uh, your, your, your mindset. And it's something that um, it, it's still a struggle with me to think that I could potentially go to a city like Paris or Rome and leave not seeing the things that I had on my list. Hmm. And I worry that I would come back unfulfilled. And so that's what, I, what I'm personally working on is changing my mindset of what it means to experience new cultures. Uh, and it isn't it isn't sticking to an itinerary. Sometimes it is sitting in a restaurant for two hours when you thought you'd be there for thirty minutes. And so that's something that I really wanted to to nail home. Uh, the mindset that you need to have or that you should have is really about um, appreciating the experiences for what they are, and then trying to pull them in and and, and create value out of them. Not not an objective thing, right? Is that Oh, totally. And actually, something occurred to me, I don't know if I ever quite put it this way. If you go to Paris with your list, and suddenly you realize you went to the first, second, fourth, and fifth arrondissement, and no other part of Paris, you went to like four different neighborhoods. Well, remember that you're going to live pretty long, and let those other places be a gift to your future self, right? You're discovering all this stuff by accident. You're you're um, you're having a lunch that ends up lasting four hours, and you end up hanging out with these awesome people from Poland, and you go to a nightclub with them. Well, then realize that maybe you will get to the seventh of one month or the eighteenth of one month when you're forty-seven, and that's a gift to yourself, right? And that you've saved that self. You haven't. You literally haven't crossed Paris off your list because you've given yourself the opportunity to come back and have your mind blown in twenty years because. You haven't seen it all because you haven't totally crossed it off your list. And there's going to be places in Paris that you literally have not laid eyes on. And you've given yourself a gift 
of the future while giving yourself the gift of the present of being spontaneous, of being surprised and having a good time. So I have to write that down. I just now thought of that, the idea of giving your future <laughs> self. Well, it's recorded so you can listen yeah. to it. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Part of me, when I was in, I think, seventh grade, I had the realization that seventh grade was really hard. It was different than sixth grade. Oh, and man. I asked my parents, can I take a break after high school? And they're like, no, you need to go to college. And I think now they probably would say something different. But, uh, you know, 15 years ago, as a kid, they're like, no, you need to go to college. You need to graduate college. You need to get a job. And then in college, I had the opportunity to travel a few times. And at that time, I was in a very committed relationship. When I got back from one of my trips, I ended up proposing to my now wife. And it would have been great to travel, but we have other life plans. But I think part of the human psyche is wanting to plan and plan so much. Uh, my wife and I are a little bit opposite in that regard in that she wants to plan and know everything about the next 10 years or 20 years. And I want to know maybe a little bit about what's going to happen next week. <laughs> and I like having a un predicted unscripted future and knowing that maybe five years from now we could be living in Bonn, Germany with a, with two or three kids, who knows? But I wish I had that opportunity as a high or right out of high school or right out of college to go and travel for at least six months with a very limited budget and not worry about my financial future. And I think that's what so many people worry about. It's like, no, you need to work right out of college. You need to get a good job. You need to pay off your debt. And then you need to build your future wealth for when you retire. And then when you retire, that when you don't have your youth is when you can have fun. Oh, man. That's exactly why I wrote Vagabonding, you know, because that's the attitude I grew up with. Um, but, and I've told this story many times, my grandfather was a Kansas farmer. And by the time he had come in, he'd been, he started farming, he quit eighth grade and started farming. He was in his mid teens when he started farming. Um, and uh, when he retired, my mom had all, my grandma had Alzheimer's disease and he couldn't really, not that he dreamed of travel, but he couldn't really enjoy his retirement. That life doesn't just give you, if anybody works hard, it was him. Life doesn't just reward you for working hard, you know, that you have to sort of create your own path. And you know, there's the idea of the gap year, which is sort of a structured way of thinking of unstructured time. Mm -hmm. um, and I never had a gap year. I've sort of been unstructured with my unstructured time. But that might be a way, if you're partnered with it, as it sounds like you are, with someone who prefers structure to say, well, this is our gap year and this is the year we're just going to, in a structured way, be open to unstructured things. And I think that's a great thing to do after high school. Not that everybody had, I didn't do it, but... Um, Oftentimes, kids go to college with no idea what they want to major in, no idea what they really like, apart from playing video games, you know, yeah. watching Netflix. And that's not a weird, that's a normal thing. But it's because we don't really design youth to, to tap into people's, into young people's passions. I think sometimes we squelch them, you know, we're afraid of young people who get too excited about things. Well, what a great time when you're 18 to do that gap year. And, and let's face it, you'll go to you know, Germany and spend the first two weeks partying, but then pretty soon you'll be discovering things. You'll be meeting people. And suddenly a year later, when you go to college, you'll think, 
wow, every time I saw a bridge in Europe, I wondered how it was built, and I think I'm going to be an engineer. I want to study engineering because that captures my imagination. Or every time I saw a public dance performance, I thought, holy crap, that's what I want to do. I'm going to major in performance, right? I think it, it, it isn't something that goes against college and education and development. It's something that goes hand in hand with it because travel is that time where you can almost by accident discover your passions. And, the, and sometimes they'll start at the bottom of a shot glass and that's fine when you're 18 or 22 years old. But eventually you'll realize that you've seen the bottom of a lot of shot glasses and that's cool, but there's other, that life is so much richer than the bottom of a shot glass. And pretty soon you're discovering what you love and who you are and you're going back to that structure of environment, enriched, educated, and just, you know, as a 19 year old taking your first year of college, you're just going to be so sophisticated and so fired up. Oh yeah. I remember my, this is 10 years ago now, the last time I probably talked to him, but Jack Shepard, if you're listening, I always thought it was the first time we met. Um, I learned that he had taken a gap year off and he was actually a year below me in college, but he was the same age as me because he had taken that gap year and he had done some travel. And one of my wife and I's really good friends, he also took some time off, I think after college, um, and just lived in Germany. But the other Jack, he just backpacked through Europe for like eight months. And I thought it was the coolest thing. And he had this cultural rolled experience before even getting to college. Granted, I don't think he really knew what he wanted to do in college still, <laughs> but he just had this different aura about him that he had this semblance of self compared to a lot of the other college kids that were trying to figure out who they were while still trying to make friends. And he already knew who he was. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a big one. <clears throat> yeah, yeah for sure. It, it makes you more, sorry, but it, it makes you more dynamic too, that you might not know what you're going to major in when you go back to college, but suddenly you're taking a class, you know, about anthropology and, and then you ask your, your, your teacher something based on your travel experiences. And then your professor thinks, holy crap, this person is interested. Like most people are just sort of a thousand yard stare in this class. And then yeah. suddenly he's giving you resources and he's encouraging you that, that, that it's relationship based and it's so dynamic um, that it's not, not all one or the other, that sometimes it might take you six months or three years before that those travel that travel wisdom really kicks in and you realize how benefit beneficial it is but yeah go ahead and and, and one of the other um I, I don't remember what i was going to say but one of the other major things that um, a vagabond must do comes down to material possessions right and and that's something that i guess i just wanted to nail home too to the listeners and, and anybody who may be interested in traveling the world is to stop spending on material things and maybe uh if you could provide some insight on how they could do that and maybe things to sell and get rid of or you know how to manage <laughs> how to manage their consumerism and uh maybe delete the amazon app off the, delete the amazon app off of their phone which i highly recommend for anyone to do to be honest yeah yeah that, that's a discipline that, that's good to start young and then just exercise it throughout your whole life because i think I quote a woman who was actually my professor in college years ago. She said, don't let uh, monthly payments on avocado green furniture sets dictate the rest <laughs> of your life, right? It's <laughs> like the, and, and the dumb crap that we allow ourselves, that we think is going to make us happy. And there's actually, there, there are actually scientists who studied and that material 
acquisitions don't bring the same amount of happiness as experiential ones. And that actually the amount of time that your avocado green furniture set or your, you know, motorcycle or whatever, um, brings happiness is pretty short. A motorcycle actually allows you to go places, but, um, uh, absolutely. You know, how do I put it in vagabonding? I, I, I have three principles like rein in your expansion. Don't, buy any new stuff um, and like then, stops stop expanding start saving and reduce yeah yeah and and so start saving is a big thing because sometimes people think that they need to have some sort of magical golden egg to fund their travel when in fact it's just save in a, just a very old-fashioned way save like your great-grandparents did back in the day and eventually that's what's going to take you on the road and, and it's going to be like one skipped co starbucks coffee you know, that, that you make at home at a time, you know, one skipped brainless night at the bar with your friends, which is going to be so much better when you go to the bar in Bali, right? Um, that's how you build the trip. It's just slowly and humbly saving things. It's not winning the lottery. It's realizing that you've already won the lottery by, of time by being born and you're given so much time to experience your life. Um, and so, yeah, just, just find ways. And there's ways, if you have a bunch of crap in your life, there's ways to sell it. There's ways to even give it away, you know, um, because why worry about when you're in Namibia, why worry about your expensive things back home? Um, you've really, uh, actually, you can probably see my, I've, I've invested a lot of my wealth in books over the years, um, but I actually don't even touch those that much anymore. So you really don't need much, uh, to enhance your life. The material things, there's a reason why we're encouraged to buy things. In part, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic now and people are, are worried that consumers aren't buying things is bad for the economy. And, th and that's a true thing. But at the end of the day, you have permission to not buy things, that you have uh, uh, permission to reinvest your money into experiences, which again, are going to make you smile on your deathbed in ways that, um, you know, that new I don't know, whatever yeah. electronic Furniture. accessory won't. Yeah. Right. And it's, right. it is at times a sacrifice. So for you right after college, was it you, instead of, uh, you know, hanging out around the Seattle area, you actually worked, saved up money and then took a trip across the country and yeah. you ended up having a, uh, much more rich experience from doing that than what you perceived you would have done if you had hung out and stayed with friends. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, as you started that question, I was thinking about how stupid my dating life was in Seattle. You know, I was like working all the time. I didn't want to spend much money. I must've been the worst date in the world. But then on the trip <laughs> itself, I met, I met this, uh, I talk about her in my podcast about this trip. I met this girl in Florida. She's a woman now. She seemed like a girl at the time. She was maybe 20. And then one of my best experiences of the trip was just spending some time with her and my other friends in Yellowstone. And it wasn't sort of this hyper romantic or, or sort of swaggering guy experience. It was just lying in a field next to her after swimming in a lake um, and just sort of feeling the sun on our skin and just being so happy that I'd met this girl. And it wasn't, you know, she didn't end up being my wife. You know, our relationship didn't last very long, but it was such this perfect moment on planet Earth. And I was so happy that I'd done it. And who cares about all the dates I didn't have in Seattle? Because I met this girl in Florida who met me in Wyoming. And we were sitting in this field, feeling the sun after swimming in the lake. And even when I was 23, I was so grateful that I had that moment. And it was so better than anything that would have happened 
when I was in Seattle. And that in, in a nutshell is what can happen in travel, that you can have an experience that's so beautiful that your friends say, oh, but did you hook up? And it's like, who cares, you know? I, I, I sat in a field with this girl and we, we, let, we let the sun dry the water off of our skin after swimming in the lake. That is the most beautiful thing that happened to me, you know, of that week, if not that year, and I couldn't have predicted it. And, and so, yeah, let yourself have those experiences. Yeah, it takes it beyond just a physical connection and it takes it more to an emotional and just long lasting memory. Yeah, in ways that you, that you couldn't have, descri- I couldn't have described before the trip and I can hardly describe now. You just have to be there and you have to just allow yourself to be there for those experiences that you're just so grateful for. <laughs> so well, I think that I think what I've learned from this conversation is that there need to be at least two policy changes. <laughs> One is to give everyone more vacation. <laughs> Good luck. And the second, well, actually, maybe three policy <laughs> changes. The second being that there should be at least not maybe a mandatory gap year, but an allowable a choice for a gap year that's not condemned or frowned upon. And then third, if you go to college, I think everyone should be required to do at least a semester abroad. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go against you, Elliot. I think right, what, what we've learned from this conversation is, is somewhat the opposite. You don't need uh, to have a lot of vacation time. You don't need to worry about your gap year. All you really need to do is set yourself up and get rid of your material possessions and just go and experience. Um, You do need some savings, but I think worrying about that stuff should be secondary if you're capable of going right now. No? And and, and go indefinitely. And go, go, I mean, go for as long as you possibly can, given your life situation. Right, but that's for, so the the first item is more for people who are, trying to transition into vagabonding, let's say. And the second two items are for individuals, young individuals, right? That don't necessarily know what they want to do. And this will help them figure out, A, if they want to vagabond or if they don't want to. And give them an opportunity to find themselves and eventually find where they fit in with the rest of society. Okay. I think that whatever... However, that is implemented, and the answer is that both of those work, both of those systems work. Um, I, I, I was a little bit less structured. I never had a formal gap year. I ran track in college, so I never you know, took a semester abroad or anything, and so I just sort of made it up as I went along. Um, but just remember that once you become a traveler, you become part of a dialogue that's thousands of years old and stretches across society. Eventually, you will be the employer who will have five young people who, are, who want a job, and you're gonna be the employer who sees, huh, two years off, they lived in Korea, they, they lived in you know, Libya, that's interesting. And you become a part of that conversation. You, know, be, you become on the old person end of that conversation. And I don't think it really matters how you start. I'm all for the, the structured gap year type thing, but you don't have to wait for permission for that to happen. Once you, be, once you become, I guess like I'm now on the older end, right? Like I'm in my late forties now. And so I have to remind myself, you know, that people who are on the younger end of traveler travel have those same questions that I did, you know, and, and that, that I guess the best solution to um, jackass boomers is not to become a jackass millennial when you get that old, right? (laughs) Remember that this is part of the conversation and to find ways to encourage each other, however it happens to encourage people young and old 
to become a part of this dialogue and not to um, not to stake out our territory of right and wrong, but just be a part of that conversation. Um, right. Are we going to judge people as millennials that didn't travel now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. right. All right. And real quick, uh, what does the future hold for you? Do you have uh, any books in the works, any travel plans? I do. It's probably too soon to say how what the specific books are, just because we're in the middle of this pandemic that has like a compromised our ability to travel. Let me see what day it is. Yeah, so literally in four days, I had plans to take my 18-year-old nephew to Italy and Switzerland for his high school graduation, <laughs> um, uh. which I was excited about because I never, I didn't really start traveling until I was in my 20s, and the idea of like traveling on trains through Europe as an 18-year-old was exciting, and I wanted to sort of experience it through him. Well, guess what? He can't even graduate from school because of the pandemic. So my answer isn't solid, <laughs> but I'm I'm an optimist, and I know that travel and life is gonna be different in, in different ways, but I'm gonna to continue to write, I'm gonna to continue to travel, I'm gonna to continue to, to podcast and, and interact with whatever technologies come our way. Um, and that's just, again, I'm, I'm in my late 40s, but for, for the people in their 20s who are listening now, it's just, life is dynamic and there's ways to figure out challenges like the one we're going through now, just like there's ways to, to figure out being lost in a city on the other side of the world. Uh, and there's a lot to be excited about, despite this pr somewhat depressing moment in world history. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Do you, uh, you want to share your your social media outlets and your podcast information with our guests? Sure. My podcast is Deviate with Rolf Potts. I'm thinking about it a lot now because it's it's actually a medium that I have a lot of time to to invest effort into right now. Um, it's on any uh, platform. Just put in Deviate or Rolf Potts. Any podcasting platform will have it. Um, I'm active on social media, but I'm sort of tortured about social media because I'd rather live life off the screen. Uh, so maybe go to rolfpots.com, which is sort of an old school way of doing things. I've owned that domain since 1998. That connects to my Instagram, to my Twitter, to my Facebook. But at the end of the day, it's a good resource for all of the stuff that we've talked about, including my books. So rolfpots.com, deviate with rolfpots, uh, deviate with rolfpots, those are good places to start. All right. All right. And we have... I don't know if Bob mentioned this in our correspondence at all, but we have started doing, you will be our fourth guest. Is that right, fourth Bob? Or fifth. Fourth or fifth, yeah, something like that. And we've been doing rapid fire questions. So okay. we purposefully do not prompt you so that you do not have time to think about them. Okay. So whatever comes to your head first is your answer. <laughs> okay. This is always fun. There's right, 12 of them. 12 questions. And yeah, then we're going to try to go... I apologize um, in advance one. for my answers. <laughs> nope. It's all good. It's all good. We love doing these. It's been really fun so far. Uh, so question number one, what is the first word that comes to your mind when you hear the word travel? Uh, slow. That, that was the word that popped in my head, probably because of the conversation we're having right now. I think it's because that's become, it's something I have to remind myself that I, I want to be like the guy eating everything at the buffet, but I, but you have to realize that with travel too, eating one dish in a good, in a, mindful way is better yeah what home comfort do you miss the most while traveling i was gonna say books but now i own a I, clearly i'm in, i'm into books but i own a kindle now right um, yeah so uh and, and i was gonna say maybe sports but there's there's ways to uh to stream sports from anywhere in the world too so there's nothing. Do you yeah. not, there's nothing that oh, wow. you miss while traveling. Well, my house. I love my house. I live on the on the Kansas Prairie on, on 30 acres, and I love uh, this little space I'm in now. But uh, I'm happy to to forgo it a few months a year now. 
right. One of my favorite questions, if you could swim in any liquid, what would it be? Ooh, I'm going to say water because I love swimming, you know? All right. Pick two animals that you want to see fight. Ooh. Wow. Like, I, like I, I, could, I, I want to say the most <laughs> absurd animals, you know, possible. But, like, I, I was on a safari in South Africa recently. So maybe, like, a cheetah and a lion, just because I'm curious. The lion would probably win, but the yeah, cheetah can't so. run him. Right, yeah. 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 Elliot? Oh, yeah. Would you rather drink wine or coffee for the rest of your life? Probably coffee, just because I have sort of a, a junkie's relationship to coffee. Like if we had this attitude without coffee or this interview without coffee, I'd be a completely different person. Now, I'm sort of exaggerating there. Uh, <laughs> I like wine and coffee, but, but coffee is a necessity in a way that wine isn't. All right. Say hello in your favorite language. Anyonghaseyo. Uh, that's Korean, which I don't know if it's my favorite language, but it's the second language I know the best, um, okay. and I can read and write Hangul. All right. If you can travel with anyone in the world, living or dead, who would it be? Probably myself. <laughs> <laughs> like a clone of yourself? <laughs> no, absolutely not a clone of myself. <laughs> um, I guess my thing is that one thing I love about travel is is it's social flexibility and the idea of traveling with one single and I apologize for whichever woman I partner with eventually um, uh, tra being having to travel with one one single person for a long period of time is less interesting than me to me than traveling alone and having the option of mixing up with all sorts of different people interesting um, interesting I like it it's uh, yeah all right I know you're not huge on lists but what is one item remaining on your bucket list Antarctica, that's the first thing that came to mind. I've been dreaming about that place forever. Uh, it's a little tricky, and I know that at times it's been a little bit over-touristed. And I've come close. I've been to the Falkland Islands, but that place is, has captured my imagination since I was a teenager. Have you thought about signing up for the list to be a U.S. Postal Service worker? To get it to Antarctica? Yeah. Or, uh, do, do U.S. Postal workers go there? I believe so. I believe there's a, a outpost because they, they have to receive mail. <laughs> well, well, there's also, a, there's a science program down there that actually involves writers. Uh, it's the Antarctic Writing Project. There, there's, there's pretexts to go there that are maybe don't involve as much <laughs> esoteric training as post, postal work. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, I, I don't know if I'd be a, a postal worker, but like I had, a, I had a friend who like she studied genetics and then she got a job with at the Antarctica project and they're like yeah we don't really genetic geneticist but we need somebody who can refuel helicopters and we'll teach you how right so it's like sure maybe someday I'll do that right cool it's uh, your turn who is your biggest celebrity crush oh gosh my my mind blanked um it's uh God. I'm still blanking. Celebrity crush, like, like a woman celebrity crush. Anybody, anybody. That could be a man. Anybody, you know, somebody you, you admire. Well, I, I don't know. Like, I, I loved the Scarlett Johansson that was in uh, Lost in Translation. Yes. Um, but the more you think about that, that's sort of a visceral thing. You know, I just sort of like who she was. I think she appeals to a younger version of me, of someone who who has traveled and realizes that 
the life they're in isn't the life that they necessarily wanted. There's something really intriguing about the Charlotte character in Lost in Translation. It doesn't help that she's extraordinarily good looking. Um, <laughs> so, so that's not the best answer, but since this is a lightning round, I, I can't backtrack that. <laughs> that's, that's fine. If you were stuck in one city for the rest of your life, which city would you choose? It would probably be New York. You know, I've been to a lot of great global cities, but New York is a special place, and uh, the U.S. is a special place. You know, I, I'm I'm uh, I'm a global person, and I love traveling. I love being in other countries, but I also sort of love America too. And there's something special about New York, so I'd probably elect to be stuck there. If you owned a yacht, what would you name it? Probably the SS Time Wealth. I don't know. That's, just what, that's what popped into my head. Um, I think it's just because, you know, when I start talking about travel, I keep reminding myself that time is what we own in life, you know, so that, that might be a reminder to myself that despite the fact that I own this yacht, how I use it and how I use my time off of it is what counts. Great answer. Uh, and last question. Who is your favorite Traveler's Blueprint podcast host? Oh, <laughs> it's a, it's a high five guys. It's a dead heat. It's a tie. Yeah. <laughs> we, we always do. We always torture our guests with that one. Well, we, we yeah, have we do. been as of recently. Yeah. But well, Bob's I'm, still I'm, ahead 4-0. Yeah. So you're the first one to, to call it even. I, I've mm. won the past four. Michael past. did. Oh, Michael called it even as well? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah he's I, like, I, I can't choose. I like the yin and the yang aspect. I like the fact that you guys are sort of a little bit disagree with each other and sort of have different approaches. So yeah, um, yeah. that's, I, I respect that. And I think that's, that's worth acknowledging and, and respecting and celebrating. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you for taking the time out of your day to come on the podcast. It's, it was great to talk to you. I mean, after listening to your book twice and then now getting to meet you and actually pick your brain a little bit has been a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm glad that we were able to have this conversation. It's fun. Tim Ferriss produced that audio book. Um, and I've, I have some people who said, yeah, I listened to your book 15 times on the way to work for a year. And it's like, wow, nobody's ever read the paper book 15 times. <laughs> maybe, maybe somebody has, but like, but, um, that's cool that there's an audio version because I think it allows people to sort of revisit the book in a multitasking way that is fun. And uh, I didn't even predict happening when I wrote it, but that's cool to hear that you listened to it. Oh yeah, 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 and and something that you know I will, I would put out there is it's it's a four hour book, so it's not a very long book, and it's just jammed with this information, and and it it gets very practical. It gets into what you should bring and the size of bag you should carry. So there's a ton of information in the book, but then I sped it up. I haven't listened to it below one point five speed, so you can actually it, it, it get it pretty quick, and that just you know I guess that translates back to my travel style <laughs> where I <laughs> gotta be efficient. Get as much information as I possibly can as quickly as I can, and then move on. Uh, maybe I should I, try it on on a slow I mean, speed next time. Su suggest a drinking game where you have to listen to it at half speed, <laughs> and you have your shots lined up every time something happens. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, my wife and I have actually been taking our dog on a walk and listening to it. Cool. It's yeah. been really, it's been really nice. Yeah. 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 It's it's opened my eyes to what else is out there and i've kind of done the whole travel at a very fast pace and see everything as quickly as i can and now i'm looking to experience life in a new way and i think this is this is it this is one way i can do it yeah yeah and and and, and speaking as as a guy who's in his late 40s now you you always have different versions of yourself to discover you know 
Uh, and so just if you allow yourself to keep reinventing yourself and keep discovering things, that's part of the, the joy of being alive. So good luck to both of you in that. Thank you. Thanks again for coming on. You betcha. It was such an honor to chat with basically the grandfather of vagabonding. I, he's not old, but I mean, in the sense of creating and promoting that style of travel. Yeah, I feel I'm thankful that he took the time to sit down with us because, you know, in the grand scheme of things, we're still small fish in a very big pond. And he has worked with Tim Ferriss and some really big names in the online content and travel content realm community, whatever yeah. you want to call it. And so I, I can't be more thankful that he took the time to sit down with us um, and, and have that conversation. It's it's really cool to be able to sit down and talk with someone whose book you read and you admire. Yeah, that's happened a few times now. It's been It's been really rewarding actually having conversations with individuals. And I just want to kind of talk about that. If you like a book and you think they'd be a valuable contribution to our show, let us know. I mean, we're at the point now where we've produced over 100 episodes and we're, we want to know which ones you really enjoy and which ones you want to hear more of because that's what we're doing this for. Yeah, Bob and I like talking to these individuals, but you, the listeners, are the ones that really drive the content. So we want to know what you like and what you want to hear. Yeah. So uh, if you can, take two seconds out of your day right now to either subscribe. Right now. <laughs> subscribe or like as i mentioned at the beginning of this conversation it goes such a long way in helping us produce better content follow us on social media we're on facebook instagram twitter all of them i don't know how many there are anymore maybe not we're not on tiktok we're not on tiktok um so and if you want to just reach out to us via email travelersblueprint at gmail.com for anything for insight on travel for ways that you know you think we could make a better podcast whatever it may be we like hearing from you so thank you for listening and tune in next week